Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It takes a pandemic. Okay, you fill in the rest. For instance, it takes a pandemic for me to finally clean out my desk. It takes a pandemic to start reading that pile of New Yorkers. Uh, it takes a pandemic for me to finally learn to fake. Well, for audiences of live performance, it takes a pandemic to cherish our actors and musicians. With our great jazz venues and theaters closed, live performance has stopped. But actors and musicians continue to create. They have to. It's who they are. For this Hunker Down podcast, I talk with these artists who perform for a living about how social distancing is affecting their work now and when this is all over. About their dedication to the art of live performance. Olivia Jampole is an actor, writer, and filmmaker living in Brooklyn, New York. As a child, she entertained guests at the bed and breakfast her parents ran near the coffee fields of Costa Rica. She studied filmmaking and literature at Harvard University. Ms. Jampole has performed in readings, workshops, and developmental performances of courageous and bizarre new works. She has been in over a dozen award-winning short films and web series. We began by setting levels, as I usually do, and discovered Olivia's eclectic taste for breakfast. And then we talked about a play production that she was in uh, that I saw directed by Joel Bernstein. What you have for lunch? You mean breakfast? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I had um, rice and beans with a poached egg on top and three chocolate chip cookies. That says a lot. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh Uh, A little Mexican Pillsbury (laughs) breakfast. That's right. I tried to make chocolate chip cookies, but I didn't have enough flour, so I said, fuck it. Uh Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, it's my podcast. I, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, Because I don't, you know, it's social interaction is confusing right now. Yeah. Yeah. you just well, tell me if I've gone too far. Anyways, I tried to make chocolate go. cookies without enough flour. I said, F it. Uh-huh. And they came out as just one giant <laughs> smash of cookie. <laughs> like a great, I'm a like, terrible homemaker. Like instead of a cookie chocolate chip, it's just a chocolate chip. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, it was delicious, though, which yeah. is what matters. Right. Cho- cho- chocolate is great. How do you know Joel? I know Joel. Um, I participated in a Altered Minds, which was this small uh, festival of short plays. I was in Takes a Lunatic or something. I think it was something like that. Julie Dodd's piece about a um, young Jewish couple whose son had developmental 
difficulties and was getting kicked out of school. I yelled a lot. Joel is so wonderful as a, as a director and collaborator. I congratulate you on that piece. It, it was an interesting balance between going too far with the mother and yet having that sense that, you know, when she realizes she went too far mm-hmm. and it's like, it's like your, your heart just at the end goes out to her up yeah. until that point, you're kind of going like, what a bitch. Uh-huh. You know, why doesn't she cooperate with a husband? And then you, yeah. re- then you kind of, it all comes together right in that last moment. Like she's, I, I think, like, oh, I, I, I really fucked this up. Something like that. Uh-huh. At the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, which I totally relate to. Um, yeah. I'm not a mother, but I certainly am in positions where yeah. I feel like I go too far and then, you know, realize that I fucked it up. <laughs> yeah. And yet in the moment of fucking up, it's like you, you think you're doing exactly the right thing. Yeah. It's like you're just, you're, but then you realize, oh, I did it again. Yeah. I did it again. I went, I went too far. Yeah. That's what, um, that's what I got. Brilliant. Yeah, I think so too. And then it's just really resonant in terms of gender roles, you know, in that, like that kind of whatever the histrionic that is often yeah. on top of a female character like that. So That's it right. is a delicate balance. Although I felt like the audience really resonated with her. Uh, um, I, you know, I, there was like clapping at the end when she told the, yeah. the head of the school to fuck off, which I think is yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it can go a lot of different ways, that piece. How are you doing in this hunkered down position? Are you staying in? How are you dealing with the pandemic? You know, I made the brilliant choice last, the end of last year to take the plunge and move in by myself with oh. my cat. Her name is Remy Ma, after the iconic rapper Remy Ma. Uh-huh. Does your cat rap uh, at all? What, she she doesn't rap, but she's... Um, Does she rip? She's certainly cooler than I am. Um, she's incredibly sick of me. Uh, All cats are cool. Cats are much cooler than people. Yeah, cats they are just, much. They just than don't people. give a fuck. They just don't care. They don't give a fuck, and I spend like ninety percent <laughs> of my time trying to impress her. Um, <laughs> especially now, I've been wearing. The only reason I put pants on and brush my hair is because I'm hoping she'll notice, and she never does. <laughs> she never does. She just goes with the pause and go. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Good good try there, Olivia. Good try. She just like she turns she puts her butt in my face, walks away, flips me off, turns <laughs> towards the window because apparently that like one fat chipmunk is more interesting to stare at every day. Wow. Uh, so anyway, I'm doing really well. <laughs> good. Good. So that is all to say that I thought it was a great idea to live totally by myself. And then this happened. But, you know, every time I feel sorry for myself for living totally alone, I then talk to one part of a couple and then the other part of a couple. And they're both typing from computers in the same house being like, help me, stuck at home with, <laughs> with this jerk. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, exactly. Well, my, my wife and I, we've been together for many, many years. And so we've kind of figured out how it works with a couple. Yeah. I, I think wiving and husbanding, it's, it's, it's not an easy thing. And you need practice and you need counseling. And then after about, you know, 30, 35 years, you kind of figure it out. Or you're yeah. divorced. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you figured, that, you figured it out the other way. You figure it out one way or the other. Yeah. And yeah. it probably helps to be able to just go into another room and, you know, text each other rather than have to yeah. actually well we have we, we have my office she has a living room and so we yeah. 
we've okay. we've worked right. it out. We get together at dinner and breakfast, and it's it seems to be all right. So, are you going out? Or are you walking? Are you uh, you don't have to walk I, a cat? Yeah, I do like a quick little uh, run around the block, um, which yeah. <laughs> which is sort of a slow knees up jog. It's one of those really weird things where I you know I see somebody coming down the street and I immediately go in. I walk into the middle of the street where cars are in order to avoid them. I do too. Um, which I feel like, yeah, I feel like at this point, cars should start driving around pedestrians, A. And B, just so bizarre that to see another human coming, I like literally am going to go put my life in danger in the middle of the street, um, right. which is, I feel like, going to change the way we interact with humans generally after this. Um, yeah, someone yeah, was I saying that we're not going to be handshaking anymore. I, I mean, know. the handshake is a thing of the past. We'll be... Namaste or, you know, something yeah, else. It's, it's especially hard because I come from, like, I grew up in Costa Rica where, you know, uh, people show a great deal of affection when they're interacting with someone. Um, there's a lot of just, like, touching arms, touching bodies, a lot of smiling. And then you kiss each other, hello and goodbye, which is insufferable when you're trying to leave or leave a party or coming into a party. Uh -huh, it takes yeah. like three hours. You have to kiss every single person at the party or yeah. it's a huge slight. It's going to be hard for me now going forward to not only not be able to, you know, kiss someone, yeah. <laughs> but also just avoid them completely. So, um, plus I come from like a, you know, a pretty like hippie Jewish family and like already the boundaries are blurry in terms of <laughs> affection and conversation and how close you talk. And yeah, so well, yeah. Ha happy Passover. Thank you. Do you yeah. do? I had a virtual Seder. Uh, we did, we, 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 we did too. We did yeah. too. It was, uh, I thought it was awful. I just didn't like it at all. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have my, my, uh, my sister's chicken soup or brisket or, or any no, of that we good had stuff. Any of the food. We just drank wine together. Yep. Yeah, and yeah. at a certain point, one of my friends, I guess, well, uh, on our Zoom meeting, Elijah showed up at 11 p.m. There was a little box, and it said Elijah has entered the conversation, and that was spooky. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. I've been alone for a long time, so I was like, Elijah, yeah. like, what's going on? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, come. <laughs> we, we have a, you want to come over? <laughs> we have a glass of wine for you. Come on. Exactly. We put know, it out every year and you never come around. And so, never. Maybe so we've come chatting. Around. We've, uh, you know, we started to build a little bit of a relationship. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I think there's a video there. I think there might be something there. I mean, you, you, you create videos about you interacting mm -hmm. with characters that aren't always there. That is so I think true. a little thing with Elijah. Oh, yeah. hi. I think that might, that, that might be interesting. I, I wanted to ask about your parents. Are they still in Costa Rica? They are still in Costa Rica. Um, they really made the right choice. Every time I go home for the holidays, which is like used to be, I guess, once a year, I um, question all of my choices living in a shoebox in New York City. Yeah. I live on like a coffee farm where they grow organic coffee and they have hundreds of birds. Um, and you said the... you grew up in a boarding house too. I grew up in a, in a bed and breakfast in a hotel. Okay. And Till high school, yeah. Um, it was like an eight-room, one one big house, basically, with like eight rooms. And we ate dinner together every night with all the guests, which um, was stressful. But I that's probably where I started to become an actor. Uh, because at a certain point, I was so tired of being forced to eat with guests that I started just creating my uh, different characters that I would come down to dinner with every night. Would you would you dress differently <laughs> according to the character? I would, yeah. 
and I would, yeah, I would use accents. I would create different backstories. It was. Um, and did the guest react to you as that character? They, sort of. I think they knew that I was the daughter of the owners and maybe just a little weird. <laughs> and they had to get along with you, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so. my parents just ignored it completely, right. so. And they're not cool. they're not facing this uh, pandemic in Costa Rica. I haven't heard reports about how it's hit Costa Rica, but it is an island and isolated, and I guess it's okay. They have been doing a really good job, I guess, the government, I mean, or so they say, yeah. of containing it. There's only about, I guess, 400 cases or less, but they, they pretty much shut down the country and all of the borders really quickly. And my parents had been traveling through Spain up until like Ooh. March 14th, um, sort of in that like, well, you know what, like we got to live our life sort of vein, which uh -huh. drives my sister and I crazy, of course. I bet. They made it back to Costa Rica the day before they shut down all the borders. Um, my parents were like, come down, come, like, come quarantine there. And then mm. they closed off the country. You were considering of going down there? Spending the time there. Yeah, I wasn't actively considering it. You know, there's something weird about, like, obviously it'd be a great place to quarantine, but this is my home in yeah. New York, and I do sort of feel a duty as a New Yorker to be here now. Um, yeah, I feel like this is, like, I am part of whatever is happening here, and that's important. Um, plus, I have Remy Ma. Yeah, you have Remy Ma, yeah. He probably <laughs> so, doesn't like flying on a plane and yeah. would complain all but sorts of ways. Right. I think I would feel a little bit unmoored if I went down to Costa Rica. There's something about like, I don't know, like I'd be giving up on, on the city. And I, it's the same way I feel about when to Florida in the winter. I'm like, you're giving up. <laughs> <laughs> take it. Take it. Suffer. Yeah. Yeah. That's this is the bad part. You got to live the good part, but you got to suffer through the winter. Exactly. Yeah, I, kind of, I kind of feel that way. I, like I, I really can't enjoy the summer unless I've Worked my way through the winter and then all oh, the spring and the flowers. Exactly. And you deserve it. I earned it. I earned it. Actually, my doorbell just rang. Can you give me one second? Sure. It's always a big moment of the day when I get a package. <clears throat> so they, they deliver it to the door? I think they probably are leaving it downstairs. Okay. Um, All right. So no yeah. one came up to the door. Yeah. Because God forbid someone should actually come up to the door. I was I was coming up the elevator after my little jog that I do, and I met one of my good friends that I've known for years, and mm -hmm. it's like he was covered, I was covered. An elevator came, and he it was like that that social thing of Are you going to come on the elevator with me? And I said, No, no, you take it. It's yours. <laughs> and then I waited for the next elevator. Let's talk about you as an actor. You studied at Harvard. But you didn't study acting, you studied film and literature. Correct. Uh, so yeah. how did you get into acting? Yeah, so I, I was always interested in acting. I was always an actor all through, uh, you know, my youth and high school. But I was interested in so many other things as well. And I, I guess I felt that if I went to a conservatory, an acting conservatory, I would be pigeonholed into... Um, into just acting and I you know I always loved reading I always loved writing um and I always wanted to write as well slash I couldn't imagine spending four years with actors because actors can be insufferable <laughs> wait a minute wait and a I minute wait no, no, no. as an actor <laughs> no 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 I I hear you I used to be an actor in fact I went to SMU acting school and yeah. Southern Methodist, and it's like, yes, yeah, some some really good friends were actors, but some I couldn't 
stand because it was all about them. It's especially true about stand-up comics, but you know that's another conversation. Yes, that is absolutely <laughs> true. Because there's also like a like a you know a, a heavy pinch of uh, depression laid in there as well. Yes, because I had done a few programs as in high school with actors, and I just decided I couldn't do that for four years. For four years. <laughs> um, but yet and, you became an actor. Yes, so, I did. Well, so my trajectory was I, so I, well, A, I got into Harvard, which is, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's a cute little school in Boston. Um, but it was one of those yeah. things in, in uh, Costa Rica where I had gotten in and if I hadn't gone, it would have been uh, yeah, traitorous, you know. Right, um, after getting into Harvard, yeah. Right. So um, I don't, I'm not, you know, I, it wasn't necessarily the, the best fit for me or I, I didn't think, um, but it's a great school and it was, you know, it provided a lot of resources. So when I was there, I discovered filmmaking um, and they didn't have, when I was there, they didn't have an acting program, uh, which I felt said a lot about the, the, their feelings toward the hierarchy of the arts mm-hmm. um, in that there was a writing program, there was a filmmaking program, there was a visual arts program, there was a graphic design program, but there wasn't an acting program. You had to do it extracurricularly, um, and you could take a few classes at ART. You could take classes there through, you know, Scott Ziegler and a few of the other <clears throat> major players, but yeah. you had to do it through the English department, and it didn't count um, towards a, an acting degree. I mean, in fact, I didn't think of it as a real career at all, and I loved acting, so I did uh, tons of shows while at Harvard, and we had the the boon of having the ART there. Um, so we had an incredible theater on which to play and tons of really great actors and, uh, you know, directors through the ART. Um, however, since you couldn't concentrate in it, for me, it was always like this inc- this really, really wonderful hobby, right? Because I, it, I, they basically made it feel as if it wasn't a real career. If I wanted to be taken seriously and get a job at a college, I sort of figured I had to go into this other lane, which I also did love. Actually, so, and the other problem was when I was doing filmmaking at school, I was uh, in this program called VES, which is Visual Environmental Studies. And already that program was tiny. My class of filmmakers was about four. I lucked out in that I had a film professor, Lodge Kerrigan, who, I don't know if you've seen his work, but he's he's an amazing filmmaker, uh, independent filmmaker, whose films include Keen and Clean Shaven. He also uh, wrote and produced the the Soderbergh um, executive produced show, The Girlfriend Experience, a few years ago. But he also was an incredible professor and a really kind, wonderful mentor. And so he basically helped, uh, you know, allowed me to follow this trajectory, which I was really thankful for, and stayed on as my thesis advisor, even though they're only usually hired for one year. And it's still really influential today. We talk all the time. We're very good friends. But the program was so steeped in documentary and so kind of antiquated that we had to shoot on 16 millimeter, which is cool in theory. But then we had to edit on a Steenbeck, which is, you know, where you literally like pull the film through and you cut it, you splice it and then tape it together. My my wife went to film at NYU and she worked. I saw her working on the Steenbeck all the time. Yeah. yeah, it was you know 2010. Like well, this should not a <laughs> laborious, laborious work. I think they had three or four Steenbecks, which 
and there's only like 10 left in the country, you know? And <laughs> like, I get it, but it's such a Harvard thing. It's so like precious and bespoke, you know? Yeah. And it's like, well, you have to learn how to shoot like this and edit like this so you know what kind of choices you're making. And if you actually cut, that's it, you know? And it's like, I get that. Yeah. It's a very nice sentiment. However, it does not prepare you for the real world in any way. Really, one of them, the department head actually right after school had also called me and asked me if I wanted one of the school's steam bags. Yeah. I guess getting rid of them. And I was like, no, Rob, it's literally the size of my apartment in New York City. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's yeah. talk about your acting uh, a bit, because it's like the thing that this show is focused on is being an actor during a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and and, and what's, what's that like? One of the first things I guess you did when you came to the city was get involved with the Flea Theater. And, and, yeah. and the BATS organization? Yeah, so I guess my whole long trajectory story was that at a certain point, I realized that I missed being an actor, but that I had never actually gotten uh, uh, the kind of exposure um, or training because of Harvard and then because of my own hangups. Um, and I was working for a celebrity at the time who will remain unnamed as a personal assistant. No initials? <laughs> no, you can reverse the initials if you want. <laughs> okay, okay, go on, go on, go on. I'm going to make a guess. All right, okay, I, yeah. I, I made the guess. Um, go ahead. But, uh, Very impressive, by yeah, the way. I really thought it was going to be really creative work, really interesting, both as a filmmaker and an actor. It turned out to be incredibly personal, obviously, you know, like middle of the night, wear my socks, like that kind of just totally devoid of anything creative. And so I started in my lunch breaks going out for auditions um, without telling him and booked this really small show off off like in you know I don't know somewhere in the East Village like up like 15 staircases the elevator didn't work you know whatever but I was thrilled you know I was just so like because acting is all, I'm a very anxious neurotic person and acting has always been the the only time in which the voices in my head are kind of quieted and I feel centered. And I think that's really the reason I keep coming back to acting. Um, cause it's the only thing that does that for me. And so I realized that I missed it so much. And even though I was doing this during my lunch break, the celebrity who will remain unnamed, I, I told him at a certain point that I booked the show and that I would love to just turn my phone off during performance. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, 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 of course, of course, of course. Um, and I came back, you know, during intermission to the back room and I had maybe 65 voicemails, like, calls, just like totally, Whoa. you know, like, uh, can't, could you give me a cab? Uh, I can't remember where I, you know, like blah, 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 blah. Talk about um, voices in your head. Yeah. And so after, after a, a little while longer of this and I kept on booking these like kind of small shows, I realized that I just... There, this is the only thing I really wanted to do and that I would rather kind of start over and be totally broke, but to feel this way again, um, even though I was making a really good salary with the celebrity. And, you know, technically I was like close to, to fame and all these like fancy, shiny things. I just didn't care anymore. Yeah. Um, you wanted the work. I wanted the work. Yeah. And I, in that respect, I'm really glad that I, that this was my trajectory into acting because I appreciated it from a different level. I didn't, it wasn't like a straight out of NYU or some other acting school into like, this is what I deserve to do. And, but no, no sense of like what it is not to be doing it and what the real, you know, what the real world is like. Yeah. So anyway, so this first show that I did that was really funky, basically a series of monologues, mm -hmm. um, akin to like the vagina monologues, mm -hmm. uh, different women going through different experiences, like really beautiful, just a really small, 
small run, you know, in a really small space. But um, the four women were were wonderful and smart. And I think it was the first time that I had been, I guess, I don't know, around actors who, like me, were also interested in the world and just so interesting and passionate and doing the work because they love the work. And um, one of my co-actresses, she was telling me that she had to go from that show to do a late night event called Serials at the Flea. And I didn't know anything about the Flea. I didn't know what it was. And she said, oh, it's so much fun. It's like uh, these actors basically write these short skits like serial, like episodic serials. And at night at 1130 in the audience, tons of like raucous activity and they drink beer and, um, and you know, there's 10 sh short shows. And the next weekend, the ones that get voted on come back with a new episode and they only have a week to do it. And it just sounded like heaven to me. You know, I was like, that is what I want to do. Oh, like, I want to be wow. around people just writing and making and that kind of scrappy energy and, but smart, funny, interesting, you know, not like going out for uh, like wanting to be a, you know, a, a commercial actor. And I don't know, it was, the, it was the, the spirit of it that I yearned for. And so it sounds like, so like you, like from what I, what I've just been meeting you, yeah. uh, the writing yeah. and the acting, it's not so much improv, it's doing a performance with lines. So it's acting. Yeah. yeah. And the, the ability to create new characters every weekend and then develop them, you know, and some amazing pieces have come out of serials, in fact, that have like gone on to have a full new life, like Puffs, which went on to New World stages and became a, you know, like a culty fan favorite and uh, Kapowie Go-Go is a different show. And it was all created by these young actors, these bats. Plus, you know, just having a company of actors is is, is pretty rare anywhere, especially in in... New York. And so the idea of it just was like, that it was what I had been looking for. But, you know, I hadn't been acting really in New York, so I didn't have headshots. I didn't have a resume except for college. Like I didn't have any of these tools that most actors had been prepped to have. Yeah, and I think it should be pointed out that BATS is a non-union. Yes, non-union. Uh, um, and at that point I was obviously non-union. I didn't you know, the whole world was super new to me. However, because it's a place where they, they attracted tons of amazing directors, amazing playwrights, and they had a huge pool of talent, it was really competitive and selective to get in. And this woman, Eloise, this actress, she said, well, you know, there's going to be auditions, company auditions coming up in a few months or like two months. And she's like, you should come audition for the company. And, you know, I didn't have I didn't have monologues. Like I just, I was so out of that world. And so I spent a really, t a really long time preparing for this audition because I just thought the idea of it was amazing. And yeah, and I happened to get in. And so I immediately started doing serials, which I loved. And, you know, and there's a lot of, it's contentious, obviously, because it's non-union and it's non-paid. There's been a lot of blowback with the theater about how it's, you know, like abusive to actors for this reason. But I credit the three with starting my career for being the place where my like faith and excitement in acting yeah. was invigorated and ignited. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things I wanted to cover in this podcast series was the idea that acting is something that's done with others. Mm. And mm. that we're now in a position where you're hunkered down and you're not with others. And I, I guess you can do some sceneries with uh, Remy Ma. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's like she's not going to give you very much. Um, and so, I mean, it sounded like Bats was such um, an inclusive, 
over kind of wonderful experience of working with other actors who are at your yeah. who are at your level and were working yeah. into, into their career. Can you talk about that? That working an actor working with actors and writers and directors. What does that feel like for someone who's never done that? Um, it feels it feels a it feels lucky. I think it's the kind of connection that that you rarely make in any other. Uh, in any other field or in any other aspect of your life. And there's just a type of, I mean, and it's the same reason that I, I, I want to be a stage actor predominantly. Um, and then I love film as a filmmaker, but it's because of that energy that's created when you're acting with other people. And especially when you're doing something where you're creating a character together or you're creating a character within a world that's already been written for you. Um, but the energy is just... It's palpable and it's young and it's not afraid of making mistakes and it's excitable. And when you're in a company like the Flea, it's different than when you're going out for an audition, you know, for um, for a casting director or for a larger regional piece or whatever, because you're just you're in a space where you know everybody and you're playing with with a group of people that, you know, outside of the theater and within. So there's a safety there and a comfort and it just allows you to express some parts of yourself that you might not in any other arena. I mean, I, I have a, most of my friends are actually very separate between my friends in the theater and my friends outside. And, and I value that because I have a different energy within both and both have helped me navigate the two worlds. But yeah, I would say being in a company of actors is really, really special and really, really rare. Um, and they're some of the best friends that I, that I've made have been through the flea. Um, both in hard times and in good times. But I have never felt as, you know, cradled as within that community. I mean, it's not just serials where you're, it's like people hanging out every night. You know, there's been like marriages that have been, that have been uh, <laughs> forged because of the flea. There are bands um, that have come out of it. The lobbyists are uh, a group of musician actors that came from there. And it just came from hanging out in the lobby and, you know, somebody brought a guitar and there's everybody is a multi hyphenate and everybody has so much passion and interest that it's just these creative uh, sparks everywhere, you know, from from, I don't know, splinter theater groups to to music, to love, to web series, to I don't know, you name yeah. it. Um, and it's all just from being in a lobby together, you know, like all these people just like riffing, uh, I don't know, rapping, uh, beatboxing, like it's just constant wow. stuff. So it, tur it turns out you really do like actors. <laughs> you got me. Yeah. <laughs> you, you lied to no, me I, before. I mean, you I, really I like do. them. I do. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to throw you a curveball. See, see if okay. you can take it. You're talking about these moments that kind of just bud and emerge in the moment of, of, of finding a piece, of performing a piece. Can you think of a moment in which you were working with another actor, with a director, in which you went, wow, this is great? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I've had a few moments like that. Um, I've been lucky in that at the Flea, I've been part of um, a few really impactful shows with really amazing actors and writers. I did a, I was part of the, uh, the last A.R. Gurney play mm -hmm. wrote right before he passed. It was called Ajax and it was a two hander. 
Um, and it was part of uh, what was called two class acts. So there was two shows going on one after another in um, sort of in rep. And the two-hander that I was in, Ajax, where I played, I played a young adjunct professor, like a 28-year-old professor of drama. And the other actor was my student. And the play was done uh, in a room that looked like a class, like a college classroom. So all the audience members sat at desks as if I was their professor. Um, and my student, the other actor, was sitting in the room as well. This was a show that because it was just the two of us um, and we were interacting kind of with the audience every night, the energy changed in the room every night. And Bernie's language isn't, nat isn't necessarily naturalistic, but when you sort of lean into the language and, and it becomes part of your language, um, you inhabit that world, it becomes incredibly natural in a really fascinating way, uh, which is why I, I like his work, even though it's outside of you know, what I would normally gravitate toward, sort of like wasp culture. But the, the language, if you, if you inhabit it, actually becomes really natural. And because it was just the two of us basically having an intellectual spar every night, every night there was that like complete loss of self. And it was just this new uh, energy and relationship that was created in the room. And, you know, the denouement, the ending would change depending on whatever it is we were feeling in the moment. But it was just one of the most aha, you know, like so when you just click in, you forget what you're doing because you're so clicked in. In that show, I was so clicked in that I don't remember acting, you know, and that was really special. And I think I think there is something about two handers sometimes that in which that can happen, especially because it's all just it's literally what acting is, it's all responding. Um, and the whole thing was basically just responding to each other. And so that just changed every night. And we were in a space that wasn't a stage, which also just helped for the, you know, and sometimes we'd have two people in the audience and sometimes we'd have, you know, mm. uh, 60. Um, and that would always change the, the interactions as well. But it was all about like a, a, basically a growing relationship between this professor and this young student and became really, really close with the other actor, which is obviously another thing that can happen when those lines get blurred as well. <laughs> but yeah, that, uh, and I also give credit to our director that time, Stafford Arima, who is the best director I've ever worked with. Um, but he, he, yeah, he was so, um, he was so interested in watching uh, like a legitimate thing bud between us every night that um, that it, it really, like I, I, I let everything go in a really great way. This is theater. Yeah. I mean, you've, just, you've just described theater because it involves the, the director and the writer <laughs> and the actors <laughs> and the audience. And, yeah. and without those elements working together in, in one place, it doesn't happen. The magic won't happen. It's really um, amazing. I mean, I, I will also say, and I forgot to mention this, we had just opened this show, which was running for a few months or two months, and it was the night of the 2016 election. And I believe right. that was one of our opening nights. I don't know if you remember that night or who won. Do, but... I, do I remember that night? <laughs> just kidding. It changed all our lives. The next day, we had a show, and I remember coming in, and my, my acting partner at the time... Um, who was wonderful, he came into my dressing room where he found me under the desk in a ball mm. crying. And mm. I was, I couldn't breathe. I was, 
beside myself. I felt somehow personally accosted. You know, it was it was like it was fundamental. Mm-hmm. And I remember him laying down next to me in our fetal position mm-hmm. and hugging me and saying that this that we were going to be there for each other tonight and that it was important to do this because people needed it and people needed the escape. And it was really hard. Um, but I remember getting like through tears, putting my makeup on, putting on my costume coming out into the room, which was packed to the gills. Mm. There were people standing in the hallways, you know, sitting on each other's laps. And we did the show and it was the best performance I've ever had. Um, And people cried and stood up and clapped and afterwards thanked us, you know, and and I thanked them. And it was this like incredible uh, power of theater where we needed to all be in a room together collectively and laugh and cry and grieve and feel each other's energy. It was like collective, collective mourning, but also to be transported somewhere. And, and that's what theater does. And that's what's so sad. I think about this moment right now is that it's really hard to not be together and feel that energy. You know, after nine 11, there was a similar thing where people actually wanted to go to be together in a theater and be, cause it's so important to do that. And right now, we can't for obvious reasons. And I think it's it's hard not to be able, and New York does this especially well, but it's really hard not to be able to collectively grieve in each other's energy and each other's airspace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's really ironic. I mean, you've, you've kind of stated the reason I started this podcast. It's like, that's what we're missing. And it's so ironic. We can't get together. We can't yeah. do theater now. Yeah. We can't do theater. We can't, we can't do film either. And I wanted to kind of end up and talk to you about your film work. Um, I, I've seen bits and pieces, which you have on your website. Uh, anyone could go just look up Google Olivia Jampol, J-A-M-P-O-L, and you could see work that she's done. Obviously, the, the piece that I think is really shows that you are going to be a filmmaker, if in fact you wanted to, is Janine. Uh, I watched it again this uh, this afternoon before I... I saw it. Very impressive piece of filmmaking. I I applaud you for put for putting that together. When did you make it? It's called Janine. I guess you can uh, look it Jeannie. up too. G- Genie, Genie, Genie. Thank you. Um, I made that in college. Actually, that was my senior thesis. Um, so yeah, 2010. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's shot on 16 millimeter. Um, and I think. It uh, is emblematic of a of both um, emotional and uh, an aesthetic world that um, that I really stand firmly in. Um, which, although it has changed in terms of the you know of the the angles and the shapes and the knowledge that I have emotionally, it still pretty much stands for. Uh, a lot of my interests filmically, um, which is just interesting because it's very, it's always been really different for me than, than acting and that I sort of think of film, um, like painting. Mm-hmm. I'm always, I've always, almost always thought in terms of a palette, whether that's an emotional palette or a color palette or both. Um, and that world, and I think it's also because I grew up bicultural. I grew up as an expat in Costa Rica, um, very much feeling Costa Rican, you know, I was five when I moved there, but I was always like uh, very blonde and mm-hmm. <laughs> white and obviously what that would be called a gringa. You know, I was never of that world totally. And yet I was never fully American because I never lived there. And I, you know, I spoke Spanish at the same time I spoke English. And 
but I was fascinated always by film and this idea of Americana, what I thought was Americana, which was, in my mind, for some reason, this 70s color palette, which is these oranges, this yellow hues, the like Fanta on the lip, this like endless summer, you know, the like... <laughs> Um, I, love, I love the stylistics of it. I mean, <laughs> the orange throughout and even the, yeah. the main character, the young girl with the orange on her lip. And it's yeah. like an and, um, almost clown-like orange that's, that's on her lip. Yeah. And as she's trying to discover her own sexuality, her own being uh, in this um, kind of richy world that she's, that she's in. Um, yeah. yeah, I, 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 I love I saw it twice and I, I enjoyed it both times. Um, are, are you doing any work now in film? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, unfortunately I took a, a bit of a hiatus, um, cause I felt that I needed to fully focus on acting for, for a few years when I started, cause I didn't really start professionally acting until like 26 or 27 even. Um, and once I found my footing in that world, um, and now feel quite confident in the connections I've made in the theater that I'm able to do, I realized also how much I missed writing and making film, especially because I just think the opportunities in film as an actor, I have not been thrilled with um, compared to theater, which has just been beautiful and challenging and weird, regardless of budget. Um, and as in, you know, the roles I usually go out for in films are often girlfriend, number yeah. five, crazy, you know, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. Um, yeah, the, but the, the, funny the is, role, I would say the role that you, that you wrote for, um, Virginia, uh, who, who was it played at the young girl? Well, Whitney Owens. I mean, yeah. it was such a full role that you put together for her to and play. She was 22 when she did that. Get out. And yeah. And I remember casting this, and I was like, at first I looked at tons of children, um, and they kept coming in, and you know, they were clearly like trained and they could say the words, but they were missing an emotional depth of just having had the experience of you know, of, of uh, sexual becoming or whatever it is. Yeah. And um, they just weren't fully there emotionally. And I remember this girl walked in and she was amazing. She had the like naivete, naivete and the kind of like um, childlike wonder and curiosity of a, of a kid, but she could fully embody the feelings of loss and, you know, sexual confusion and all of these things, not to mention it was just Harvard was a little concerned legally about <laughs> having any sort of um, dealing with sexuality and wow. child actors, even though there was no obvious, you know, physical um, situation. Yeah. But yeah, it was I just, I felt so thankful that she walked in. And she's never done anything since, but she was incredible. She cut her hair, she grew her hair into a rat tail, which she then cut on her own, chopped off the rat tail and gave to me. And she said that she thought this is something that Jeannie would have, which I have a shot of that, but... It was amazing to me how much she inhabited that character um, and brought to it such a life. So, yeah, I was really thankful for that because I've been asked throughout festivals, um, you know, how to handle having child actors and, a, you know, a sexual theme. And I was just very lucky that I actually had an adult who happened to be able to navigate that. This is Alan Winson with Hunker Down Podcast, speaking with Olivia Jampol, actor and filmmaker. I then asked uh, Olivia to read something for us, and here's what she chose. I'm reading a lot of poetry while I've been in quarantine, weirdly, and it's not something that I've normally picked up and read. So there's two, two poems that are kind of opposite. The one is about wanting to reach out to the world, and the other one is about wanting to be solitary. And both of them, for me, seemed like the two 
the the two sides of my of my stone, my inner stones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this poem is by Adrian Rich. It's called "In Those Years." In those years, people will say we lost track of the meaning of we, of you. We found ourselves reduced to I, and the whole thing became silly, ironic, terrible. We were trying to live a personal life, and yes, that was the only life we could bear witness to. But the great dark birds of history screamed and plunged into our personal weather. They were headed somewhere else, but their beaks and pinions drove along the shore through the rags of fog where we stood, saying, I. Okay, this is a poem by Cesar Vallejo, and it's called Me Viene Ideas Una Gana, which means for several days I have felt an exuberant dot, dot, dot. For several days I have felt an exuberant political need to love, to kiss affection on its two cheeks, and I have felt from afar a demonstrative desire another desire to love, willingly or by force, whoever hates me, whoever rips up his paper, a little boy, the woman who cries for the man who was crying, the king of wine, the slave of water, whoever hid in his wrath, whoever sweats, whoever passes, whoever shakes his person in my soul. And I want, therefore, to adjust the braid of whoever talks to me, the hair of the soldier, the light of the great one, the greatness of the little one, I want to iron directly a handkerchief for whoever is unable to cry. And when I am sad or happiness hurts me, to mend the children and the geniuses. I want to help the good one become a little bit bad and I badly need to be seated on the right hand of the left-handed and to respond to the mute, trying to be useful to him as I can. And also I want very much to wash the lame man's foot and to help the nearby one-eyed man sleep. Ah, love, this one, my own, this one, the world's interhuman and parochial, maturely aged. It comes perfectly timed from the foundation, from the public groin, and coming from afar, makes me want to kiss the singer's muffler and whoever suffers, to kiss him on his frying pan, the deaf man on his cranial murmur, undaunted, whoever gives me what I forgot in my breast on his Dante on his chaplain, on his shoulders. Uh, on his frying pan. Kiss him <laughs> right, right, right on his frying pan. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we need that kind of like openness to the other or yeah. anyone who we identify as the other because right. the other is really not the other. It's really us. Yeah, yeah. And, and oh, it, seems, just, it seems so easy to fall into the eye and into the you know, the, the navel gazing of our situation, but really we should kiss everyone on their frying pan, on their chaplain. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am metaphorically kissing you on your frying pan, thanking Olivia Jampol for joining us today on Hunkered Down. It was a, it was, it was thrilling. It's wonderful. I, I got to know you a little bit, which, um, um, I'm, I'm happy Joel has introduced us as Joel Bernstein of, um, Mozart in the Jungle. Thank you, Joel, from Mozart in the Jungle. Yes, of course. <laughs> and from and from other things. So, Olivia, yeah. thank, thank you very much. Stay thank hunkered down, so stay healthy, so and let's stay in contact. And keep me in thank touch you. with what's going on with your film work and your acting. Well, certainly. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. And maybe sometime we'll actually meet at a bar, because we do another program called Bar Crawl Radio. 
Mm-hmm. We talk. We talk to interesting people at bars. Yeah, so you think I, I'm talkative now, uh, sober in the morning. Imagine me at a bar. <laughs> have a, have a great day and be safe. You stay healthy. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Hunker Down podcast, conversations with actors and musicians about their lives on stage during a pandemic. If you have any questions or suggestions, please contact us at Upper West Side Radio at gmail.com. That's one word, Upper West Side Radio at gmail.com. <laughs>